Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for October 2012. I am writer-critic-difficult second album Lee Zachariah and with me as always is... Hi there, I'm uh, writer-director-unspeakably-misogynistic um, even though I'm about uh, white male greed and patriarchal evil Paul Anthony Nelson <laughs> and with us today is our very special guest... Um, hi, I'm... Uh... Festival programmer, hyphen, uh, film buff, hyphen, um, Frenchman, <laughs> Matt Ravier. <laughs> Welcome, Mr. Ravier. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on. Bonjour. I've been, bonjour. I've been listening to you guys for a long time, and I'm really, really thrilled to finally be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Ah, oh, our pleasure. We're thrilled to have you. Now, I'm sure absolutely no one listening at home is wondering why I said difficult second album. Uh, but the reason is that I've been thinking about Woody Allen a bit. Uh, ever since that third, first podcast when we talked about his films, it occurred to me that Woody really does suffer from the difficult second album condition. Uh, Interiors is a film that followed Annie Hall. Celebrity followed Deconstructing Harry. Scoop followed Matchpoint. And now To Roam With Love, his latest film, has to suffer from following Midnight in Paris. Have you guys seen To Rome With Love? No, I haven't had a chance, unfortunately. I'm really looking forward to it, and I feel like I've let the Hyphenates team down a little bit by not following up on, on our uh, Woody Symposium. <laughs> yeah, so, so have I. I I'm, I'm sorry to say I haven't seen it, and I do make a point of watching every film that Woody makes, but uh, this one, not yet. And and I, I think the second album thing's interesting. It's more like you know, kind of the follow-up, but I kind of like a lot of those movies. Likewise, I like, likewise. I, I, you know, I, but, but you're right. They always kind of lurk in the shadow of the big one that came before. It's also, uh, for those who have seen both of these films will understand where I'm going with this, it's also essentially Woody Allen's Looper. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to leave that there and then let you guys go and watch the film with that in mind. I'm definitely going to see it now. <laughs> Eisenberg tries to kill Woody Allen? Awesome. You don't see it coming, but it's, <laughs> it's, it happens. But speaking of filmmakers uh, we've covered on the podcast before, Frankenweenie, the new Tim Burton film. Cue Thundercrack. Yeah. Do you, do you find it funny that uh, this is a film about resurrecting things from the dead and it's kind of like Tim Burton being resurrected? It's like, oh, there's that filmmaker that we all used to like. This isn't the Planet of the Apes, Alice in Wonderland, Dark Shadows guy. This is the proper Tim Burton who, uh, who understands emotions and things actually being aesthetically pleasing instead of just sort of plasticky CGI weird. This is such a return to form. And how interesting that, that to resurrect his career, he's actually going back to a short film that he made, uh, you know, at the beginning um, and, uh, and bringing that back to life as a feature. Absolutely. I, I haven't seen Frank and Weenie, but I did see the short it was based on um, and really enjoyed that. You know... I was about to leap in and say, oh, my God, I've been saying the same thing all week. Uh, and then I heard <laughs> the back end of your, uh, of, of your assertion, Lee, and I have to slightly divert. I, I do absolutely agree. It's so great to see Tim Burton engaging with emotion again. It's so great to see Tim Burton feel sincere again. It's just a sweet little film. Um, I think in the end, though, it... There's something that's way too familiar about this, and I almost felt, I, I felt that the the metaphor of going back and digging up some a much loved uh, thing from the past 
and wanting that to be the future is kind of, it's also a metaphor for this film. It's like he's gone back and discovered uh, part of what made him love filmmaking and made us love him. But at the same time, it just feels like he's been here before time and again and, and better. Like whether it's Ed Wood or whether it's Scissorhands or whether it's um, the, the Frank and Weenie short. Um, and in the end, I just couldn't quite love it because it just felt like, you know, it wasn't like, like Wes Anderson's Fantastic Mr. Fox was a style that completely knocked you on your, on your keister. It was kind of like, I'd not, you'd not seen Wes do this before. Whereas sure. we've seen everything in this film we've seen Tim do before. It's just nice to see him engaged again, and I enjoyed it, and I, and I do recommend the film, but there's that niggling part of me that's like, yeah, but I've seen all this. Fair enough, fair enough. I, I like that we've both used the, the film as a metaphor for uh, our own personal takes on it. Now, Matt, you've seen Argo. I, I have, yes. I have seen that at the Toronto Film Festival. Oh, you saw it at Toronto? Yes, yes. Oh, and we were getting along so well. Um, <laughs> what, do you, uh, what did you think of it? Um, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I thought uh, it kind of rehabilitated uh, Ben Affleck in my eyes in many ways. And uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I love the parts, especially the first half. I loved when it's anchored in, in history and in reality uh, as much as, as you know, that's possible. And, uh, and I was really engaged by it and, and felt the suspense almost all the way through. I was a little bit disappointed by um, by the last kind of act where uh, I feel that a lot of the suspense results from um, you know contrivances that that mm. I don't quite buy you know the the eleventh hour um, uh, you know the, the the plane tickets and the the, the tarmac episode and uh, you know this this everything else seemed so holistic and so based on a really really good story that very few people had heard before and then the the, the last just reverts to um, kind of generic tropes of of the genre and I was a bit disappointed by that but otherwise great fun that's fair enough I. Uh... Yeah, I, I, no film can stand up to being compared to all the President's Men, but I kind of got that vibe, even though stylistically it's nothing like it. I think just the way it aesthetically captured its era uh, really appealed to me. And look, I, I love Affleck as a director, even though I'm not a huge fan of The Town. And the film, I just felt, was so tense and tight. And I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, i got to say, I agree with Matt 100%. I was really, really gripped by this film for the first two thirds. And as you said, Lee, it's evocation of period through both visual style. It looked a lot like uh, Gas Van Sant's Milk in the way it was shot. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And, um, and, and it was, and, and almost had that kind of docudrama kind of rigor that, that Hollywood films so rarely do. Um, an example I can think of is Apollo 13. A film that doesn't feel like it's exaggerating. It kind of feels like this is kind of as it happened and it's really kind of involving and, and they keep everything real and stripped back until that last act when it suddenly turns into a, a little bit of a cheesy thriller. Like, there's there's one chase sequence in particular that's just ridiculous. Like, if that... I mean, I'd, I'd like to be proven wrong that that happened in real life, but it just feels so much like a Hollywood contrivance to me yeah. that it really pulled me out of 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 the of of the film um and i got to say before the suspense kicks in it's also really really funny 
Um, mm. And and, and th- that's mainly from the, the brilliant pairing of Alan Arkin and John Goodman. But it's a testament to the script as well that it's able to kind of walk that tightrope between comedy and what is really, really serious um, drama and, uh, and that it never feels inconsistent. It, it's, you know, there's some really, really hilarious scenes in there, but it never detracts from, from the dramatic stakes. Sure. Absolutely not, and and I, I do like that they give the historical context as well, and and that you're firmly informed that the 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 Iranian protesters, um, the uprising happened for a reason. You know, they had a point. The, the you know the the US had installed the Shah, and he'd cleaned the place out, and then they were harboring him, and so it's it, it does. It, it sets that there is no bad guys here. There's just innocent people caught in the middle that we need to get out. And I thought that was really yeah. great. I think that Affleck's really building like a next gen Lamette career here, between you mm. know police corruption in 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 uh, Gone Baby Gone, and then sort of I guess you've got kind of a, a police robber thing of uh, drama of the town. But this, I, I feel like Argo and Gone Baby Gone in particular are very Lumette esque, in which he's kind of letting the acting and the story tell. Um, do the work and his style is very subtle and he kind of sits back and doesn't impose himself on it but at the same time is in real command of his craft i think you're right about that and uh, i certainly think there are worse people you could model your career on um an australian director who has gone to the u.s to make a film about essentially about the culture of violence and, you know, on a very, very sort of deep and primal level. I'm talking, of course, of either Lawless or Killing Them Softly, <laughs> both of which came out this month. What do you want to start with? Uh, let's, uh, let's start, I think, with uh, what is one of the top five films of the year for me um, quite easily at this point, and that's Andrew Dominic's Killing Them Softly. Yep. It's very geared to someone of tastes like myself, but... I saw it and I had misgivings, um, but mostly really loved it. But then in the in the weeks after, I've thought more about those misgivings and actually discovered the moments in the film I had misgivings with actually exist for very good reasons. And the film's right, and I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> and it's it's just so damn good. I'm really making a a, a case to anyone who listen that, along with Peter Weir, Andrew Dominic is our best working director right now. And his films re- reward repeat visits as well. And I think Killing Them Softly is uh, no exception. The performances are just world class. I think that the, the the way Andrew Dominic uses Brad Pitt in both this and Jesse James, it's all a you know, it's it's all about small gestures and it's all about really, really subtle tonal shifts in, in, in whether it's just a look or, or 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 a word or what have you. I just think he's he's in those two are just work beautifully together. I think the story it's interesting because it really isn't subtle. It does knock you over the head with its with its um, mob as um, as kind of microcosm for the U.S. government kind of uh, illusion. But then there's subtleties beneath that that yeah. you sort of think about later, and so it's kind of working on a macro and micro level. I love films that have whole other films going on underneath the surface that you could completely miss particularly in the soundtrack. And I think there's a whole other film going on with the sound, and I think the key line is Brad Pitt's line, uh, some guys get spooked by the sound. And I think that's sort of the, the, the key, that there is something else going on in the soundtrack underneath it all. And, and you're right, it does hit us over the head with the, the US government comparison, uh, but it gets away with it because 
well, I love being hit over the head with things if it's done right, but I also love that there are layers and layers and layers to this thing. There is a uh, a volume to this film and, and kind of a... I want to say bombast, but with but with content backing it up, that's just so irresistibly cinematic about this film. Like the, the there's stuff like the way Brad Pitt is introduced to um, Johnny Cash's when the man comes around is just fantastic. But it perfectly grounds us into who this person is and the weight he has within this world. And yeah, I, I think this is a, a tremendous film, and um, I, I, I just love it. Well, meanwhile, Nick Cave and John Hillcoat are making what I realised is their second consecutive film about three brothers facing off against the law. I'm actually surprised that I'm holding a minority view on this uh, because I loved it. Wow. And the reaction has been mixed. It's been been quite uh, divisive, I think, uh, and hasn't sort of won people over the way the proposition did. Yeah, that's because I think... I, I just found it so much clumsier. The The proposition was a film where Hillcoat seemed in full command of, of, of his craft um, and Cave was bringing that that sort of weight of history but also that um, that un, um, unmistakable caveness to it. You know, you know, these bizarre imagery. And, and I don't think this does. I think a lot of it is uncomfortably uh, conventional. Uh, I think that... A lot of it just feels like a loop from other films, and then all of a sudden you get these punctuations of cave imagery that are like, "Whoa, where'd that come from?" And mm. there's, you know, everybody seems, and and it seems like different people are in different films. Uh, it seems like like you've kind of got Guy Pearce doing his highly entertaining but bizarre Giovanni Ribisi thing over here. You've kind of got. Um, the Tom Hardy doing his, you know, sling blade on steroids thing over here. Look, I disagree. I think, I think the, uh, I do feel like this is Hillcoat and Cave uh, completely in command of what they're doing. And I loved, Guy, maybe that's the key because I loved Tom Hardy and Guy Pierce. I absolutely love their interpretations. And I felt that was sort of two sides of the same coin. And, and there are a lot, a lot of similarities between them. Like when they're first introduced and, and throughout the film, they both sort of respond to people in these grunts. Mm. Um, they both make that same line to, to Shia's character, look me in the eye, either side of a beating. Uh, they both look at Maggie through, through cracked doors. There are many suggestions that they are essentially the same guys, except one is this great hulking beast and the other is reptilian. And it occurred to me that you could very easily do a Robin Hood animal anthropomorphized transformation of this film <laughs> and you wouldn't have to change that much. That's really that's really interesting take. Uh, although I, I must say I kind of almost wish they had gone th- the full way and turned it into a cartoon because there's times when it's really uncomfortably cartoonish. Uh, th- th- there's times when I was uh, kind of trying to stifle sniggers at the characters, you know, it's sort of like just re- some moments are really, really silly. And I, I, I don't know how intentional that is or if it's intentional, whether it even balances with what's happening around it. Um, yeah. I, I, I felt it did. I felt it Right. Did. Yeah. I just, I just felt this film was tonally all over the place and, 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 and too conventional by half a lot of the time. And I felt the, the female characters in particular get hugely short shrift and are quite slightly offensive. It, mm, it, yeah. Well, that, that, 
Yeah, that's that's a whole other discussion, actually. Um, yeah, I just I just really felt like yeah. I mean, obviously, I I can't say too much because revealing things about the film and the characters' journeys, mm. such as they are. But let me just like I just think it's a waste of two wonderful actresses to play these roles that are basically there for functional reasons and don't really have very much to do. Well, from Australian directors to an Australian film, that is to me the best Australian film of the year so far. Amiel Corton-Wilson's Hail, um, which has just come out. Corton-Wilson is a documentary filmmaker, or has been up, up until now largely. He made the incredible film about Jack Charles, Bastardy. And I was wondering how he'd make sort of the, the jump to, to narrative fiction. And he's taken all of those skills that he, that he had as a documentary maker and sort of infused them into this film, which is basically about the life of the guy who is playing himself in the lead. He's this guy who's just been released from prison after all this time in there and is trying to reintegrate into society. And it's just, it's such a gut punch. It's so much like um, uh, The Horseman or Krivstender's Boxing Day. It's got that style about it. Wow. And this is, I just can't say enough great things about it. Matt, what did you think? Um... I, I agree. It's it's one of the films that left the the strongest impressions, uh, uh, you know, in terms of Australian cinema in in, in recent times. I, I saw it uh, about eighteen months ago, so my memories of it are, are impressionistic oh, wow. at best. But I, um, I there are some really strong images that have stayed with me, and unlike the the films that you referred to, uh, Boxing Day and The Horseman, which are which stay very realistic in tone and style, this um, this you know, is anchored in documentary and in, in reality and in something very raw, but then midway through kind of evolves into something incredibly poetic and um, abstract in a way uh, mm. to, to great effect. I, I was completely bowled over by this film and by the performances. And uh, I really wish that Australian filmmakers, um, you know, took those kinds of risks more often. And, uh, and you know, it takes a lot of guts and a lot of courage to make a film like this, but the results are spectacular. I agree entirely. Can't wait to see it. Yeah. I, I think you'll respond to it. I'm really keen to hear what you think. I'm also keen to hear what everyone thinks of The Intouchables, which is one of my favourite films of the year. I think one of the most perfectly balanced comedy dramas you will ever see. It, it's a crowd pleaser and, you know, that's no bad thing. But uh, I had more fun in this film than almost any film of the year so far. So it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, hit emotional buttons too hard. It's, uh, it's, it, it does things with subtlety. Is it? No, it's kind of, it's basically a comedy where they're not afraid to have scenes where there are no jokes, uh, which is something I find American films sort of of that same ilk sometimes get afraid if there's no punchline or if things are heartfelt for too long or they don't want to go too hard with the emotion. Mm. So I implore you to see that. Also, See Coriators, I Wish, one of the best directors out there, has done what kind of feels like a live-action Miyazaki film without any of the fantastical elements. Just this really, really sweet, gentle, elegant story. Lee, I have seen um, I have seen Coriators film, um, I Wish, and, and I can't agree with you more. It's, it's absolutely sensational, and I think no one films children um the way that Koreeda does uh with with no condescension with no gimmick with no um 
you know, with, with just great understanding of the psychological kind of uh, engines of, of childhood. And uh, it's, it's so simple and it, it's so beautifully realized. It, I really love this film and, and I can't recommend it highly enough. That, that's fantastic. And just before, look, we've been really, really positive about all the films we've talked about, so I just wanted to leave on this note. Don't see the words. Nobody see the words. <laughs> the words is terrible. It's, it, I just don't have the time. I could spend half an hour telling you how much I don't like this film, so just don't see it. Well, uh, we're returning to our semi-regular segment on hyphenates, which is uh, the mini Hellas for Hyphenates, in which we take a look at uh, uh, very compact directorial careers that may be cut short or overlooked or just non-prolific and doing a little hyphenate-style retrospective of them. And the one we're doing this month is kind of... The godfather of mini hyphenates. He's he's the mini hyphenate when you really think about it. Um, because I remember even getting into a, 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 you know film nerdery and and hearing about this giant of French filmmaking who died at the age of twenty nine after making only one feature and a handful of shorts. And that man is Jean Vigo. Uh, the man who inspi- helped inspire the French New Wave, uh, which all occurred nearly 30 years later, kind of brought this uh, reality to f- uh, French filmmaking of the early 1930s, which was uh, really ahead of its time. And and plus with uh, with Matt here, who is who runs film festivals and is French, and is uh, and we just thought for a French cinephile such as yourself, this would be absolutely perfect. Well, it was certainly a great uh, pleasure to um, to delve back into the these films. I saw a couple of them when I was a student uh, a while back, and uh, it's it's just uh, too easy these days when we're bombarded with new films constantly uh, to not take the time to um, to go back to the films that were so influential. Uh, you know, even if it means going back eighty or a hundred years in back into history. And and it was such a great pleasure to um, to look at these films again and discover some of the shorts which I hadn't seen before uh, and it's very easy now to kind of see the debt that that people owe to Jean Vigo that great filmmakers owe to Jean Vigo and um, and yeah so thank you for for bringing him back into my uh, my cinephilic consciousness it's uh it's extraordinary what he did within a five-year period uh these I guess four films um uh, a, would, would someone else like to take a shot at pronouncing them? Because um, I'm uh, terrified I'm going to. But his first one in 1930 that was shot around Nice. Well, there's only uh, one of us that's qualified <laughs> to pronounce <laughs> All the right, titles. So the, the French title is A Propos de Nice, which translates to um, About Nice. It's basically just him going around Nice with a camera and, and just sort of filming life there, uh, juxtaposing rich and poor. It's, it's, it's very gentle and observational, um, and yet it feels really groundbreaking, and I'm not entirely sure why. The, I really believe there's a satire going on here. There, there's a cheekiness that kind of begins to reveal itself as the film goes on, because it kind of starts off, as you say, as this kind of travelogue, and you, and you just sort of like, I don't really know what this is supposed to be saying, and then, and then the comparisons get more kind of cheeky and feverish and 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 soon it it, it kind of um 
it turns quite uh, it, it's quite it's quite bouncy and effusive, but it turns quite critical. It gradually draws you into quite a nice little um, satirical take on where you know uh, how how Nice kind of you know emphasizes. Uh, epitomizes the friendship you know the aff- affluent French at play and 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 what's being ignored beneath that i think it's also important to to remember that at the time newsreels were were what people saw in the cinema and were the main kind of way to to get that information and uh and here in being a silent film it's almost quite subversive because it really lets the viewer you know have its own critical response to what they're seeing and it's it's almost subversive in that it says you know what do you think rather than us telling you what you should be thinking in newsreel style and uh, i think that would have been quite uh, a shock at the time and uh, uh yeah that you know it, it's obviously a very political film it draws attention to social um inequality and and uh you know but it does that in a very gentle way which ends up being perhaps more powerful than than any newsreel that's a great point. The following year, he did uh, a, just basically a nine-minute film um, about Jean Taris, the um, Olympic swimmer. And it, it kind of, by today's standards, it just plays like a test reel. Um, but it also feels like somebody inventing cinema. I know that's a very hyperbolic thing to say, but it's kind of watching somebody figure out all the things you could possibly do and all the ways you could possibly film someone and trying to figure out if that on itself constitutes a film. Absolutely. I I don't think that's hyperbolic at all. Uh, There's such innovative cinematography going on in this film um, that I can't think of where it would have been done beforehand in terms of uh, the way it shoots aquatically. And again, there's a playfulness to this too, you know, there's... um, uh, Vigo and Terry are having a little fun here, and 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 you know it's instructional at the same time. But it's interesting that he's getting two forms that were, as Matt said, probably very very popular in early cinema. They've they've gotten the newsreel and the inst- Vigo's gotten the newsreel and the instructional film, and he's applied his own playfulness and aesthetic and 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 critical eye to them which is really interesting it's seeing a film filmmaker doing his doing his riff on these genres yeah and i think it's hard to imagine without being able to transport ourselves back in time you know to 1931 to to kind of really understand how groundbreaking these techniques would have been um you know i'm not a film historian but i imagine that you know the the these these freeze frames and slow motions and and you know reversed reversing the film and and you know the abstract kind of uh, uh mood of the last kind of few few seconds of the film that are really really kind of um, beautiful and poetic and and you know the opposite of of instructional in a way they're they invite you to 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 kind of dream and to to use your imagination and and it really really kind of uses the power of cinema in in an application that is otherwise pretty pedestrian you know which is the instructional film so i i yeah i'm really kind of intrigued by um by it and and by that freedom that creative freedom that he was allowed to to have in making this film in 1933 uh zero de conduit so good lee so good thank you thank you um basically it's about it's about kids in a boarding school being anarchic uh trying to break through this sort of oppressive regime the feeling i got watching it was like watching francois truffaut being conceived (laughs) yeah francois truffaut and lindsay anderson 
<laughs> Definitely. Yeah, yeah. This is his best film for mine. Um, really? Yeah, I think this is amazing. It's it's one of those classics that's a classic for a reason. It's got this sort of, you know, freewheeling kind of approach and 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 punky, spiky kind of humor and great imagery and and it's so ahead of its time in those regards. You know, I can't think of of, of films of that time that were do, that were working at this kind of level. And and, and really funny too. Oh, funny as hell. And with that and, and just with such a powerful anti establishment anti establishment message that never diminishes. This is an absolutely timeless, um, timeless work. And what I like to call a schlong. It's it's, <laughs> it's it's not a sh- it's not a short and it's not a long, it's not a feature it's in between it's a schlong. That's uh, an interesting term to use. I don't know that um, I'll use it again. Um, you sure? I think again, it's it's uh, one of those really um, uh, provocative films that obviously has lost a lot of its bite in retrospect. But um, I, I remember reading that when it came out in in France, it was it was booed loudly. You know, it was called scatological, and it was it was really um, uh, a lot of people just couldn't handle the 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 rebellion um that is portrayed in this film and and found it really really offensive and obscene uh of course now it seems a little bit kind of tame in in with with distance but um there's still a, a kind of huge uh powerful metaphor in there against uh authoritarian regimes of any nature mm. and uh and also stylistically it's such a fascinating crescendo um there's there's really kind of like a volcano um that you watch you know, kind of coming to the boil and then erupting in that beautiful slow motion uh, pillow fight at the end, which is one of the most beautiful scenes in cinema, I think. But the reason we remember him is his last film, his only feature made in 1934, often called one of the greatest films of all time. And that's L'Atlante. Is that right? L'Atlante? L'Atalante. L'Atalante. This is basically a film about newlyweds on a barge heading from uh, Le Havre to Paris. This one does feel ahead of its time, but I, when I watched it, I actually divorced myself of that context and was just sucked in by it as a film, not thinking about it, of its place in history. Uh, and I was, I was just compelled by its characters. But I, I was wondering what you guys think, why was it so influential and groundbreaking for 1934 that we're still talking about it today? Yeah, I, 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 and Matt may be better to feel this uh, as why I'm kind of jumping in. I'm going to leave, leave Matt uh, to last on this one. I I liked it. I, I think it's uh, I think it's it's full of wonderful humor and sweetly observed moments. And and again, there's that sort of naturalism coming to the fore, and and this kind of life as it happens kind of feel to it that's uh that's not necessarily driven by a plot machination which would have been very important at that time but i did find it a touch twee personally but i do like i still really 
really admire it and really uh, really like it, but it just it, it just didn't have the bite that that Zero for Conduct does. But what do you think, Matt? Um, I, I don't know that it's meant to be provocative, although I think um, the sensuality of oh, it oh, not was at all. really provocative yeah. at the time. Um, there's a couple of scenes where you know the the, the lovers are are separated and they're they're dreaming of and longing for each other, and you know where they're caressing their own bodies, and which is which would have been really um, provocative at the time. That um, that is an amazing sequence. It's so beautiful, and and there's a sensuality and a poetry to the film that you know has survived through the ages. And I, I, you know, he's he's a rebel filmmaker, and and but that's not why this film I think survives. It's it's just simply because of its um its beauty and its simplicity. Um, the the composition, the the you know everything is classical in a way. It's it's very very simple, but it's so poetic, and there's such um kind of a humanistic uh, romanticism about it that I really love that is not overwrought. I just love being on that journey on this boat with them. Simple as that. Beautifully, wow. beautifully put. It's worth mentioning, though, that according to legend, Jean Vigo died uh, right after the film's release in the, arms of his, in the arms of his wife as a street performer played the song from the film. Oh, Wow. That's that. Well, I don't crap. know how true that is, but I choose to believe it's That's true. Incredible, <laughs> um, and and uh, you know, I think it's it's great to um, to think back on all the you know the filmmakers that we love and and what they might have uh, taken from Jean Vigo or borrowed from Jean Vigo or or paid tribute to um, you know people like Jim Jarmusch, like. Um, uh, Aki Karismaki, David McKenzie. Um, you just see a lot of, of that uh, love for, for Vigo's films, especially La Talente in, in many recent films. And, and I love like connecting these dots in the history of cinema. It's just uh, really inspiring. All right, Matt, please tell us, whom have you picked for your Hell is for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month? Um, I picked uh, Chinese director Wong Kar Wai. Wong Kar Wai, fantastic. Or as I noticed, he's often called Kar Wai Wong. Or WKW. We can refer to him as, as Wong, maybe for, for simplicity. Sure. Yeah. sure. So why did, you, why did you choose him? He, he's not necessarily my favorite filmmaker of all time. Um, a, a few of my uh, favorite filmmakers, you, you know, your guests have picked on the podcasts in, in previous <laughs> episodes. But uh, he's a, a filmmaker that I obviously greatly admire and that I feel like I have a really a personal connection to his work. Um, I've, I've only met him once very briefly and that wasn't particularly eventful, but I, he's, his films have had a huge impact on my life and, uh, um, perhaps more than any other filmmakers. Uh, I, I actually moved to Hong Kong, um, because, uh, you know, from seeing Chunking Express, I was offered a job probably about two days after having seen it for the first time in a cinema. And I said yes immediately on the strength of having seen that <laughs> film. Uh, and the two years that I spent in Hong Kong obviously had a big uh, you know, uh, role to play in shaping who I am today. And also Happy Together was very instrumental in defining my own kind of identity, including sexual identity. And, and uh, I spent quite a bit of time with Leslie Chung in, at the Berlin Film Festival in 98. Um, we spent half a day together while he was on the jury there. And, and he was really, really instrumental as well in, in thinking about um, uh, identity. So, yeah, just his work has just been 
constantly a presence in my life. And though I haven't um, watched his films again very recently, I've seen most of them several times. And uh, especially as a teenager, they really inform my cinephilia. So uh, I, I love being able to share um, my enthusiasm for him and his work with, uh, with your listeners. That's fantastic. Wow. There are a lot of filmmakers who I feel whenever they try to insert romance into their films, it usually it feels rote. It feels like it's just there for the sake of, of, of being there and it drags the films down. Wong is the main filmmaker, I think, who I, I feel should focus purely on the romantic because he'd written a lot of films in the 80s, uh, Once Upon a Rainbow, Chase of Fortune, Rosa and so on. But the first film he directed was 1988's As Tears Go By. And the crime stuff is good, but what stands out in this film for me is the romance. Absolutely. I think, um, you, you know, he, his style and, you know, his themes of predilection are not quite fully apparent yet in this film. Um, it's, it's, it sits squarely within the traditional kind of Hong Kong genre, in this case, the triad uh, gangster film with male friendship and honor codes and bursts of violence and all of that. But really, what, as you say, what makes this film is is his romanticism and and it's Wong injecting his foreign sensibilities, his own cinephilia into the filmmaking, uh, whether it's French New Wave or, or American independent cinema. I think that that there's, for example, the you know there's a bit of Scorsese's Mean Streets in there, and uh, yeah. in, a lot. in the relationship between Andy Lau and Maggie Chung, there's a bit of Stranger Than Paradise um, of Jim Jarmusch's uh, film in there as well, uh, and that would have been really quite quite subversive because Hong Kong at that time was really about, you know, creating each filmmaker would make two or three films a year and they'd be really kind of formulaic and and here's someone who just went, hang on, this is what you can do as well. And and his use of uh, strong colour is there from day one. That first shot, the strong blue with the smoke. Yeah, and he's instantly got, you know, characters with just a, a, a room drenched in red in the shadows behind mm. them. And already he's, I mean, obviously he wouldn't, you know, find his guy until the next film but uh but that sense that sense of color is was already already there i don't know if the film works completely as you as you guys say it seems like someone who's still finding their feet and maybe working within a genre they're not entirely comfortable with Uh, well i think he's trying to find out what type of film he's interested in and you see some filmmakers have that quite early on where they're kind of dabbling in a few different areas until they find something that really clicks and you get that from certainly his first two films the second one being days of being wild in 1990 yeah and again i i found i had real issues connecting to any of the characters in these films I just I, I just felt it. they put me really at an arm's length. But again, the thing that really hits you is the style. And of course, Days of Being Wild is Wong Kar Wai's first collaboration with his Australian cinematographer, Christopher Doyle. And that's and and so the, that visual style is already amped up a little more here. And you've got that beautiful kind of dusky look to everything, and the handheld roving photography, and the kind of the stuttering slow mo um, going. And and both films have that romantic melancholy to them. That's like it's interesting because in in a lot of ways he's trying to find himself in these films, but in a lot of ways there there there's parts of him that were just there from from day one. Absolutely, there's already that clear evidence of his kind of unique style. You know, the narration, um, the sensory kind of immersion, the fragmentation of the chronology. 
um, the themes of like unrequited love and memory. But what I love is that the languor, like the torpor, uh, that oppressive kind of tropical humidity that you can almost feel on your skin while yeah. you watch yeah. the film. And I, I, there's very few filmmakers where when, when I watch their films on the big screen, I have that full kind of um, sensory experience of I almost can smell, you know, the rotting fruit or, or feel the humidity on, on my skin. And, and really Days of Being Wild does that for me. But again, I think I think you're you're right in that he's finding himself, and because he's working still with those commercial imperatives, right? Like he's still not established yeah. as an auteur, and and has to work with with the genres of the time, and so it's still you know a gangster film in some way. And while it's not a triad film because it's set in the '60s, it's more um, you know the rebellious youth films of of the the Hong Kong '60s, like inspired by Rebel Without a Cause. Um, so, but 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 already you can tell where he wants to go, and it's it's such a beautiful direction. But he really, really finds his feet in Chunking Express in 1994, which is just beautiful. It's it's where his, I don't know, I want to say Malick-esque sort of free-flowing style really comes to the fore. There is a Malickness to it in terms of the impressionistic nature of it, but it's very Wong, particularly the splashes of colour and movement and this whole kind of feeling of velocity and a city that's rushing at you that's really his own thing and there's that romance as well that just pervades absolutely everything you, you know you talk about this um, the velocity in hong kong is really kind of exciting in that in that film but at the same time there's these moments where everything slows down and and what I love about Wong Kar Wai is this kind of um, uh, how he distorts space and time. Um, you know, for example, in Chunking Express, it, it's actually when you know Hong Kong a little bit, it's set in two neighborhoods that are completely, you know, there's a harbor in between them. And yet in the film, it all seems to be in the same place. Uh, and the same with time, you know, there's there's moments where everything is rushing and then everything just freezes. And uh, you get to think about, you know, how you perceive um, romantic relationships through the prism of memory and time. And it's a very, very poetic notion um, that, that, that really appeals to me. There's a looseness to this film as well that, that marks a guy who's found, found his, his metier, who's found what he wants, you know, who he is and what he wants to say. Um, in, the, in, in the fact that suddenly it's very, very funny, it's very, very likeable, it's very freewheeling, it's just, as you said, Lee, utterly gorgeous. And there's this real kind of life and affability to it that I don't think his first two films have. But then, as you say, we go on to his next film. Yeah, Ashes of Time, it, it, it's a very, very pretty film. It's gorgeous. Uh, and some of the fight sequences are amazing. Um, it kind of left me cold. I've seen it a couple of times now, and it's n I've never really been able to respond to it. And maybe part of that is uh, I I'm certain it inspired uh, Zhang Yimou, who I'm not a huge fan of. Uh, but it's – yeah, this, this film's probably – the one that engaged me the least. You know what? It feels like his first two films again. It feels like he's taking... I think he's more comfortable with it than he is the gangster stuff. But it's still that... It feels like... Whereas in, in films like In the Mood for Love, 
um, that there's genuine melancholy. In this, everyone just kind of seems mopey. You don't get the warmth that you get from something like Chungking Express, and you don't get the deep well of, of poignant sadness that you get from In the Moon for Love. So in the end, it's just kind of in this netherworld of it's gorgeous, but it's just not connecting. But some of those images, my God. Totally. So beautiful. But I think he's aware of that. I think, um, I think he carries the <clears throat> responsibility of making the, you know, the wuxia, the martial arts film, uh, that's got, it's so loaded in, in Chinese culture. Um, and, you know, it was a huge budget, uh, and a huge, uh, trust put in a relatively kind of young director. And, um, apparently he spent years on it. And interestingly enough, he stopped making it. He stopped in the middle of the editing because he just, it was just too big an undertaking. And it was, it, he made Chunking Express in, in a few weeks, uh, just kind uh, of off the cuff yeah, that's right. to clear his, his palette and to do something fun. And that was more in line with where his sensibility was going. Um, and, and to me, Chunking Express is the better film. It's the one that is truly personal and independent and revealing of, of his artistic um, uh, kind of aspirations. Uh, and Ashes of Time is the monument. You know, it's the, the unwieldy kind of martial arts epic. Well, In, two... Sorry. Oh, and just I just wanted to say as well, interestingly enough, he can't get away from that narration. It's Well, it's an action film. It's actually really heavy on the dialogue and the narration. And uh, mm. I, I remember him saying that uh, he grew up listening to martial arts on radio because in, in China and in Hong Kong, the, the, you know, it was a big radio uh, format, the, the martial arts epic. And so, right. yeah, he's really interested in, in the narration of it, uh, perhaps even more so than, than the action sequences. Well, Chunking Express had two stories in it, and it was originally three. And that third story was spun off into 1995's Fallen Angels. This is possibly my favourite of his films. It's the most beautiful of them. And, and you talk about his aesthetics. When I think of Wong Kar White, this is what I think of, these distorted close-ups by moving in on people with, with a wide-angle lens, these weird tilts, the constant, sharp, monochromatic colours. Uh, it, it's just beautiful. Yeah, this is... I, I've got to say, I think objectively in the mood for love's probably his best film this is my favorite it's such a roller coaster ride it's such a journey it's a film of so many colors and moods and shifts and has that melancholy but also is hilarious i mean takeshi kanashiro's whole character <laughs> the whole concept of breaking into you can't get a job so you break into stores at night and force people to use your services <laughs> um this film just has, you know, a heart the size of the Grand Canyon. And, I mean, I'm a bit of a sucker for father-son dynamics in films. When the, when it's really done well, it's almost like a, a tear button. And this film, I mean, with when uh, Kanashiro's character starts filming his dad and mm. and then watches those tapes later on, it's like if, if I think about it for too long and I'm going to wrap this up real quick before I start crying <laughs> on air. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, oh, I just love it. And all the, and, and that's the thing, and all the, the Hitman gangster stuff is really well played and it's, yeah. and it's all super cool, but there's a real, uh, a real heart to it and a real sense of place. 
and it's so rare in in kind of because I guess it's a bit of a noir film, you know. It, it, it but it's so rare to have that amount of heart, like you say, in in a film like that, and that's really what makes him such a winning filmmaker for me. Um, there's such poetry in it in the most unexpected places. The way that the the two hitmen both use the apartment at different times, and and how that space yeah. is haunted by the presence of the other, and and infused with desire and sexual longing, and it, it's very similar to that. Uh, the apartment in Chunking Express where um, uh, you know Fei Wong uh, leaves kind of uh, her her mark on that apartment and uh, Tony Long whenever he comes back to it sees something slightly different and and has a revisionist memory of the, the apartment as a result um, I love how he invests these spaces with with such um, uh, poetry really uh, it's a beautiful film Absolutely, and it's kind of a, it's it, it exists very firmly in the same universe as Chunking as well. Yeah. Um, like he, down down to the pineapple can. Yes, yeah, yes. The, uh, the, a, the, a lot of his characters pop up in in slightly different guises and in, in different films, and and that's uh, to do with the fact that, as you mentioned, a lot of the films are devised originally as two parters or three parters, and then as he makes the films, realizes that one becomes a feature, and uh, you know, at the end of Days of Being Wild, you have the start of what had to be what was going to be the second part. Tony Long's uh, character is introduced for three minutes, and it goes nowhere. Uh, but but things pop up in 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 other films, and that, as you discover the whole body of work, you see these motifs that repeat, and it's quite a, a, an interesting take on the work in itself. Ninety sevens happy together. I, I I at first thought I was watching a love story. I'm not entirely convinced that that's what it is, and I think that's kind of what makes it remarkable. Is that it's it's not one of those films about two people who have to be together. It's kind of a film about two people who probably shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly what it's about. It's, uh, yeah, it's a different... I, I think it sort of heads you into thinking that. And, 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 you know, we all have this in life. We have the person who we meet who thinks should be the one. And they're just... Everything else is telling us they're not. And, you know, you, you ignore that as much as possible and you stay together because it feels comfortable to do so. But in the end, it's just, you know, you're oil and water together. It shouldn't happen. It, it feels quite subversive to me, like, in, in terms of, uh, of queer cinema because so much of it's in black and white. Uh, but it was made in 97. Like, it's not that long ago. It is really about loneliness and the difficulty that characters have to connect with one another, which is, you know, something that is, is throughout the entire work. Um, you know, all films deal with that theme on some level. Um, but I think that uh, by being a film about exile as well, it's, it's, you know, two Chinese men at the other side of the world that have to almost stick together because they're aliens, they're on a different planet planet and they you know the, the familiar is the only thing they've got to hang on to um you get a sense that if they were both in hong kong they would have separated a lot earlier um and, yes, and for absolutely. me this expresses a lot of the anxiety that i think some filmmakers had about the handover of hong kong to china in 1997 um when he was making the film that was looming large and it it you know, there was a lot of uncertainty as to the exact nature of the political pressures that would be brought to bear on Hong Kong by the Chinese government, um, whether the filmmakers would retain a creative freedom, and in terms of the queer context, whether that was going to be a huge threat as well to the relative, and I do say relative, um, freedom that the gay community enjoys in Hong Kong or enjoyed in Hong Kong. So there was also, I think the film really encapsulates this anxiety about you know what is going to happen and and uh, whether exile is is really a solution. 
And it's it also brings up a spectre that 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 uh, looms large over Wong Kar Wai's entire filmography, and it's the French New Wave. There is stuff mm. here, and and that goes back to Days of Being Wild, and and to this, like so much of his stuff feels so informed by that that period. But then he's gotten you know the color and the speed and of Hong Kong, and applied that aesthetic um, through his his own experience uh, to that French New Wave. Uh, ethos i guess yeah he certainly added a real romanticism that that isn't quite in french new wave a real lushness that i guess they were trying to get away from um and you see that a lot in in 2000s in the mood for love which as you said probably his best film uh it's just it's so stunning and i think it, it does he does something in this that is a real hallmark of many of his films, which is chaste eroticism. Uh, he, he shows the eroticism in food. Uh, he slows down insignificant moments to create so much meaning and ba- basically tells a very, very sexy story without any of the sex. It's such a beautifully elegic film. As just There's this genuine weight of sadness that just hangs over everything. And as you say, it's a very... Very sexy film, despite being incredibly chaste. It's one of the most purely uh, romantic, but you know, sadly romantic films ever made. Just the way he lurches from style to style in what is essentially a trilogy, because this is sort of a follow-up uh, to uh, Days of Being Wild. And then 2046, which is, I guess, a science fiction film, is a sequel to this. Uh, that he made in 2004. Um, it, it's it's really odd sort of seeing them in such close proximity and, and, and seeing those themes carry through such wildly different films. 2046, I, I adored. Um, it's got this... It's, he does this great operatic stillness where he plays this grand, grand music against really staid moments. Yeah, i got to say, I like the science fiction stuff a lot more than the... That the the real time stuff in this film, okay. yeah, because the film definitely takes two very distinct strands and and juxtaposes them, and yeah, I felt that whenever we were hearing about the science fiction story, whenever he was telling that, I was so much more engaged than with the other stuff. Unfortunately, it's interesting. He's not other than this. This film goes for one hundred and twenty nine minutes, and he's never made a film longer than one hundred and two. Other than this, and I think. The the length in this is quite punishing as well. I kind of found it a bit. I agree. It's it, for me. It's, it's my least favorite film, and it's still incredibly beautiful. Um, but it feels more like a riff on "In the Mood for Love" that that just kind of explores a few of the themes a bit further. But it doesn't, for me, stand alone as as a a, a great work. Um, "In the Mood for Love" leaves me almost speechless. Whenever I try to speak about it, I just feel like I can't do it justice. <laughs> so I, I try not to. Um, it is kind of a nostalgia. It's it's a beautiful film on nostalgia. And and whenever I think about it, I just I, the images kind of superimpose over over my vision. And and uh, I just feel like there's no way to describe them. The the only thing you can say is to, to invite people to see it. Um, I, I I'm very rarely tongue tied when it comes to film, but I, I find it very difficult. <laughs> to speak about this one. <laughs> a couple of months ago, we talked about the film Eros, which is an anthology film because the second segment was directed by Steven Soderbergh. The third segment of that film, The Hand, was directed by Wong. It's kind of a jarring shift in styles from Soderbergh to Wong, but 
it really is a gorgeous short. And uh, look, he did make, we've sort of glossed over them a bit, but he did make an awful lot of short films and continues to make them. And The Hand is a good way into those shorts um, because it does encapsulate a lot of his style. But where In the Mood for Love was about repressed desire, The Hand is clearly about expressing desire. It does feature one of the most exquisitely filmed hand job in the history of cinema. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I feel like In the Mood for Love was sexuality through food and this is sexuality through uh, cloth, I guess, sort of the clothes making. And and those textures are so beautifully rendered on film, again, with the amaz- that amazing cinematography where you feel that you can reach out and touch the fabric and get a feel for, for the sensual nature of that touch. It's really, really quite a sight. But his most recently released film to date at time of recording is 2007's My Blueberry Nights, uh, the first, possibly only, film he made in the English language. He made it in the US, uh, bravely taking a chance on, on singer Nora Jones, who had never really acted before, to carry this film. I know it's not a popular film, but it really, really worked for me. Yeah, I, I dug it. I, I love that it's so him. Like there's mm. no like it's it's his aesthetic taken to America. Like there's times where where so, you know something might feel a little bit mm, that's a little bit weird, and then you sort of imagine it with a Chinese face and with a Chinese voice, and it's like no, this is what he's doing. This is what he's been doing for his entire career. This is exactly the same flights of fancy, the exactly the same emotional segues, exactly the same kind of unity of of longing and melancholy and love and I just found my blueberry night so charming and I think Nora Jones really works because yeah. I think for most of the time she plays a person who's unsure of her place in the world and her feelings about things and sometimes if she looks a little unsure on screen it plays completely into the performance but then there's other times where she absolutely um, rivets your attention and she's surrounded by mm. class acts I mean how great is David Strathairn in this? Yeah, and there's clearly a huge love for kind of screen Americana in there too that Wong's having so much fun with, and and uh, uh, Darius Conji does a pretty good job of um, of aping Doyle to a certain extent. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I I, I agree with a lot of what you say, and and uh, a lot of what he does in this film is what he's been doing you know, his whole career. And and yet, for some reason, I can't escape the fact that that for me, it's like he's parodying himself in this film. And I, I really dislike the film. Uh, and uh, I, I, I feel like it's almost, um, you know, American investors going, okay, this guy is, is obviously clearly loved around the world. There's people who've seen his subtitled films, you know, love him. How can we bottle that and, and package it in a way that it's palatable to American audiences? And for me, it just doesn't quite work. It, it, it really doesn't translate as well as it should. And I don't know that it's the English because, um, you know, the BMW ad that he did, The Follow, which is quite long, mm. I think it's something like 15 minutes, with Clive Owen is in English and works really well and, and has all of his style in it. I, I just felt like completely distanced from the characters and, and couldn't care less what they were going on about. It almost made me retros- retrospectively dislike his previous films. So I've wow. made a pact Whoa. with myself to never see it again and to, okay. to stay oh, wow. away from it for as long as I live. <laughs> much, much as I loved the film, I actually, I kind of see where you're coming from with the, with the self parody thing. Yeah, I don't know. For me, it just feels like he's just he's just working in the same idiom. It's just it, it, it's a little bit it's slightly jarring to see it in another 
in a, a, a screen language and like or a screen culture that we're so familiar with, being Hollywood and stars, and I think that makes it seem a bit more broad stroke, you know. We're just a few months short of his next film, The Grandmasters, which is, I think, again, uh, a, a Chinese film. It's coming out this December in China, and it's a, uh, a biopic of Ip Man. You say a few months away. Yeah. Let's hope. I- I'm going because by IMDb. I assume yeah. IMDb is completely reliable and, and totally correct. <laughs> uh, IMDb is often reliable. Wong Kar Wai often isn't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's notorious for, for delays but uh, I've seen the trailer I, I, I don't know if you guys saw the trailer but I'm very much looking forward to this Tony Long looks amazing in it again that's the thing I can't wait to see what he does with Tony Long playing Yip Man I mean that's just that that combination just blows my mind well hopefully we'll get to review it when it comes out here uh, hopefully next year but what a filmography. Um, Matt, thank you so much for, uh, for coming on and, and uh, bringing Wong Kar Wai with you. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a real, real blast. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Do you have any pineapple tins dated the 1st of May? I really, really need them. Heaps. Give me more. Give me more.